0: This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message we are in a, ser- uh, a series on the Sermon on the Mount and uh, we're going to continue that next Sunday obviously will be uh, we'll have something on uh, Christmas the 23rd and on the 24th of uh, be our Christmas Eve uh, service as well next week but today we're going to go ahead and continue to work our way through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 if you don't have a Bible there's one under the seat in front of you and if you grab it and go to page 473 uh, you'll be able to track along with us in what is a fairly well-known passage of Scripture. There's a number of phrases that even our culture takes out of the passage we're going to read today, and uh, we use them. Uh, So it's a fairly well-known passage of Scripture, and uh, certainly uh, not a little bit challenging, I would say. So uh, Matthew 5, verses 38 through 42, this is God's Word. You have heard it was said, an eye for an eye. God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that it is true, and we pray that you would help us to see what this passage speaks to each of us today in our lives. And most of all, we pray that you would show us Christ, uh, the glorious one who lives this out in every way. So Lord, open our eyes, open our hearts to respond to you, and make us the kind of people, Lord, who, um, who don't retaliate, but who love. God, would you please do that in our midst, that, Lord, you might reach many with the gospel as we love freely, as you have loved us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, this is probably some of the most uh, challenging, these are some of the most challenging verses in the whole Sermon on the Mount. And challenging because when you read them, you say, are we really supposed to live that way? Is that really, is that even possible? I mean, is it even possible to live this way? Is it possible to give to anyone who asks? Is that even a a viable way of life, for instance. So on the surface, it can seem a bit overwhelming, and and the tendency sometimes can be to run to exceptions. Well, it can't mean this, and it doesn't mean that, and Jesus certainly didn't intend this. And if we run too quickly that direction, we end up dulling the point that Jesus is making in these verses. One thing that he makes very clear, regardless of what this all means, one thing he makes very clear is that life in the kingdom of God, he has come to bring the kingdom. He is the king and the rule and reign of Christ. One thing is for sure that is the kingdom is very different from the surrounding culture. And to be part of the kingdom, to be a disciple in the kingdom, to be under Christ's reign, uh, to have Christ live in us is intended to make us very different people as well. Counter-cultural people who don't blend in. Uh, To the world we live in, but who stand out by virtue of what this passage talks about. Any notion of sort of nominal Christianity that we can just sort of believe in Jesus, attend some worship services, give a little bit to charity, but most of life looks exactly like everyone else's. This passage uh, makes that ideology and that approach to Christianity, it makes it very clear that's not an option, just sort of business as usual. And give the Lord an hour and a half on Sunday mornings. So that's one thing that is very clear. What what what's going on here in this section of Scripture? I want to set the context because it'll help us understand the passage. What's going on here in this section of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus is going through six Sections. And in these six sections, he is saying, You have heard it said, but I say to you. And in each of those, what he's doing is he's contrasting not himself with the Old Testament, but he's contrasting himself with. Um, the religious leaders of the day and how they applied the Old Testament. So they were concerned with one thing; he is concerned with another. The religious leaders of his day are called the Pharisees and the, uh, the Pharisees and the Scribes, the Scribes and the Pharisees, and and they are uh, known throughout the Gospels. They are known for a high level of obedience, a high level of external obedience. So they are very much about keeping a set of rules uh, and putting up a good impression of one's religious life, but. Just Jesus says that being a part of the kingdom means that uh, that his teaching is to go to our core. It's a radical, literally radical, meaning to the root. It's a radical ethic that Jesus calls us to. It's an ethic that that is not skin deep like the Pharisees. Their religious life was shallow, surfacey, and skin deep. But Jesus is saying that when we come into his kingdom by faith, we don't just adopt a few new behaviors, rather he makes us new people so that we begin. And to obey from the heart he transforms us from the inside out so jesus says in this passage it's not just be concerned about adultery we should but he says it's not just don't sleep with married people uh, that you're not married to he doesn't say just, he says no it's a heart matter if you desire to have sex with somebody you're not married to that in itself is is a sin in itself he says it's not enough just to avoid murder which we should but that's a pretty manageable standard he says no it's to avoid hatred which leads to murder the heart of murder is hate Uh, it's anger So he said we're to avoid anger, not just murder itself. He goes to the core and says, what is going on in your heart? That's what the Lord is after. That's what he is changing. That's what the kingdom is about, being new people from the inside, living a new life empowered by Christ. And so we have to keep that pattern in view when we come to this section because here's what he's saying here. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. So the context here is resistance. How we respond to those that we would tend to resist, those who oppose us. How do we respond to people like that? And he uses uh, this phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. He says, don't even go down the road of, of resistance towards people that oppose you. But he uses this phrase, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So that phrase is used three times in the Old Testament. And if you go back and read how eye for eye, tooth for tooth is used, it's called the law of retribution or the law of retaliation. Sometimes you'll read it referred to, if you read about this at all, it's called lex talionis, it's the Latin for the law of retribution. And every time that's used in the Old Testament, all three times, we learn that it's used in judicial contexts, The eye-for-eye, tooth-for-tooth passages describe the penalty that a judge is to render to one person who harms another. The eye-for-eye, tooth-for-tooth passages address the penalties for physical assault. That's what's happening. It's judicial and it's, it's, it's uh, applying to assault. And, and the idea, the spirit behind it, is that the, the judge must render a sentence that is proportionate to the crime. The punishment must fit the crime. So in other words, the spirit behind the passage is if, so, if someone punches you and knocks out your tooth, then the penalty can't be their execution. It it was really a penalty that was to moderate or to measure justice. Because what would tend to happen is blood feuds would start. Somebody would come over here and knock someone's tooth out, and then he'd go and kill the guy, and they'd come and kill him and his kids and his family, and then the brother of that family would go over here, and then they would kill the entire village, and then you got a blood feud and a war. That was the kind of thing. So to avoid any of that happening, judges rendered this kind of a sentence, a measured, proportionate penalty for the crime. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Now, by the time of Jesus, they're not maiming people. They're not literally gouging eyes and plucking teeth. It would have been more of a fine system or something like this where you would have paid for harming uh, another person. You would have paid uh, monetary damages, that sort of thing. So that's the first thing to notice, that this is a phrase that's being used inappropriately somehow. Uh, And like in every other one, Jesus is correcting what the Pharisees are doing. But secondly, and probably the most important observation from this eye to eye and tooth for tooth, is that this principle in the Old Testament applies to judges it wasn't a standard that individuals applied to even the score in their relationships it was the standard that was applied when an assault was committed a standard applied by judges so given the context and the way Jesus has handled anger and lust and divorce, the way he's handled everything else, we can presume that the religious leaders are misusing this phrase, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. They're taking something out of the law court context and they're, they're using it in people's dealings with one another. When he says don't, don't seek resistance or revenge is kind of the idea there. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth is retaliation. That he's saying that you don't do that on a personal level. You can't apply that principle to personal revenge. You can't say, You did this to me, so I'm gonna do it in return, and that's just. So you didn't help me, I'm not gonna help you. You didn't show up when you said you would, I'm not gonna show up when I said I would. You took something from me, I'm gonna take something for you. That's just. I mean, I can can do that to you because you did that to me. And the Bible says eye for eye, tooth for tooth. So I'm just upholding God's justice. See, that's not how the passage was ever used or meant to be used. But obviously, some people are thinking that you can pay back someone up to the way that they harmed you and that that would somehow be just but Jesus is saying, you don't take the legal standard for retribution and make it your personal standard. He says, you don't resist the evil person. You don't pursue any kind of retaliation. You don't, you don't respond to personal wrongs with the eye for eye, tooth for tooth. You don't seek to, to do revenge, to get revenge with someone else to sort of settle the score, to sort of even, it. so if someone's harming you, you're gonna harm them. In kind. Paul says something very similar in Romans 12, verses 17 through 19. Paul says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible... So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So this is the greater righteousness that Jesus is calling us all to, greater than the religious leaders of the time. He's saying, don't misuse eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but rather, as Paul teaches later, don't repay anyone evil for evil never avenge yourself don't seek revenge against another person but trust the lord that the lord will be the one who will judge leave it to the wrath of god he says vengeance is mine it is the lord's job to settle the score to pay justice to meet out justice to individuals don't go eye for an eye on somebody but trust god to sort it out when you're wronged that's the principle that Paul paul's Romans 12 and that Jesus teaches here don't resist don't oppose if someone does harm to you don't return it in an equal way that is what's going on behind it and that's why he mentions the eye for eye tooth for tooth which was retribution or justice now before I get into the four illustrations he uses I want to say something very very clearly That when he says to trust the Lord when someone harms you and leave it to him in chapter 12 of Romans, in chapter 13 of Romans, he says that the state is given the authority to bear the sword to punish the evildoer. So if someone is acting criminally towards you, for instance, uh, if you are a victim of domestic abuse if you're a victim of domestic abuse you, jesus does not call you to turn the other cheek in the sense of receiving abuse jesus does call you not to uh, not to act in kind not to abuse someone else uh, the perpetrator he does call you to do that, but trusting the Lord in that situation is going one chapter later in Romans and looking to the civil authority to report that so that the civil authorities deal with the evil doer the the, the abuser so if you 're a victim of domestic abuse or uh, you know this doesn 't mean avoiding rescuing children from child abuse or something like that, no, we rescue, we report so that the authorities, so that the authorities rescue. Uh, Um, uh, and protect in that kind of situation. This passage is not about, if you're under domestic abuse, keep taking it. This passage is about not pursuing revenge. That's eye for eye and tooth for tooth. That's the context of the passage. So to pull something like turn the other cheek out of its context, uh, we could really misunderstand that. So if you're new to the Bible uh, and you're a victim of criminal activity, that should be, and and you're thinking, maybe I just need to take it, allow somebody to act against me in a criminal way. No, that should be reported to the authorities. And if, uh, we'll be happy to come alongside you and help you to report that to the authorities if you, if you need that kind of help. So life in the kingdom looks very different. It's a life of non-retaliation, non-revenge against those who harm us. So let's look at the four illustrations Jesus uses uh, about how this plays out. And then at the end, uh, we'll look at a little bit of how it reflects Christ himself. So the first one is turn the other cheek. He says in verse 39, I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, uh, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Um, Every commentator that I consulted on this passage, uh, I think all, I think they all did, pointed out something that, that really stands out that's unique in the passage. And that is that Jesus identifies which cheek is struck do not, uh, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek. And they all point out the same thing. Why does Jesus highlight the right cheek? Because it it says something about the blow. Most people are right-handed. And so if, as a right-handed person, if you were going to slap someone, you would slap their left cheek. He says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, to slap them on the right cheek, you would need to, backhand them. If anyone backhand slaps you, if anyone hits your right cheek is what he is saying, uh, then give them the other cheek as well. In a shame and honor culture, which Jesus lived in, um, and there are many shame and honor cultures today, the ultimate act to dishonor another person was to backhand slap them across the face. This was an act that repudiated and demeaned another person. And in fact, in some cultures, the penalty for backhand slapping someone who is in a higher status than you was exorbitant because it was so frowned upon as an inappropriate, unacceptable act. So it is an act of violence. You know, it is an act in some sense of assault, but the purpose of what is being communicated here is likely not just seeking to injure someone, but to demean Someone You may have seen before, like in an old film, where someone takes off their gloves and just backhand slaps someone across the face with their gloves. Uh, What's going on there? Are they trying to injure and harm someone? No, they're trying to certainly give them maybe a sting, but they're trying to disparage disdain uh look down upon someone that's what the action has in mind so the right hand cheek likely speaks of the backhand which a right hand person would naturally slap another person tim keller says the slap here is an assault on your honor and not on your physical safety So again, it is an act of violence, but probably this is not the place to go to that is the be all end all verse that has to do with physical violence and that sort of thing. It is an act of violence, but it's more of an act of dishonor, degrading, humiliating. Jesus is talking about how do you respond when someone dishonors you, and in this case, in a stark way, physically uh, dishonors you. We see this happening to Jesus, for instance, in Matthew 26. In Matthew 26, verses 65 through 68, uh, after Jesus says that, uh, that you will see him on the right hand of the Father, he claims to be God, uh, you see him on the right hand of God, the high priest, so this is not when he's about to be executed, this is not when he's before the Romans, this is when he is before the high priest, the Jews, and then the high priest tears his robes when Jesus says this and he says, he has uttered blasphemy, what further witness do you need? You have heard his blasphemy, what is your judgment? they answered he deserves death then now they can't execute him the jews can't execute him the romans have to do that so they can't they can't physically kill him but what do they do they spit in his face they struck him and they slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? So here what's happening is that Jesus is facing this very kind of abuse, um, but it's it's more than just a physical suffering. They're spitting on him, which does nothing to him, you know, in terms of physical injury. They are mocking him. They're saying, prophesy to us, or are covering him and saying, prophesy to us. If you're a prophet, then you'll know who's hitting you and who's slapping you. So this is... This is a degrading, sort of humiliating uh, event that is going on with Jesus. They're treating him as a blasphemer and dishonoring him as a blasphemer and showing him disdain because he has claimed to be God. It's the very opposite of worshiping him. It's the very opposite, is what they are doing. But he doesn't retaliate, he responds with non resistant love. And he trusts his father. He models what he calls us to in this passage. And the reason I point this out um, is because I think this is helpful because we can, many of us could look at this and say, well, that verse doesn't really apply to me. I mean, if somebody ever punches me, I guess it'll apply. But until then, that verse doesn't have relevance for me. But all of us have experienced someone that mocks or dishonors or disdains or looks down upon us. Every one of us have experienced that in some way and, and do experience that, maybe even persecutes us in some way. And in those situations, the response is non-retaliation. Obviously, it's non-violence if someone's just saying something Unkind to you. I'm, I'm saying obviously nonviolence is the appropriate response, but it goes beyond that to non retaliation and instead responding in love. So Sinclair Ferguson, in his commentary on this, which we have out at the resource table, he says, Let the insults come. He's talking about the slap on the right cheek. Let the insults come, says Jesus, and show by your response that you feel no need for retaliation because you have your reputation secure with God as his child. Let your response to insult be graciousness. Will anyone be won to the kingdom by your retaliation, by your standing on your rights? How could they be when the king in the kingdom is one who did not retaliate? So he's saying, let the persecution, the, the objections, the insults come, it's, it, but, but don't retaliate, because Jesus himself didn't retaliate. How in the world will you lead them to know him if you don't act like Jesus in that? So that's turning the other cheek. The second thing he talks about is being sued. Verse 40, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him take your cloak as well. So the second non-retaliation illustration is a suit. Now, obviously, this is a poor person because they are being sued for quite literally the clothes off their back. The tunic was the garment that you wore against your skin. It was a long, thin garment that you wore against your skin. The cloak that he speaks of is the outer robe that went over that. So there would have been some kind of undergarment, like a loincloth type of a garment, then a tunic over that, and then a cloak is what someone would have worn in Jesus' day. So he's saying if someone is suing you for your tunic, it's that underpiece that goes up against your skin. Now why would somebody sue for a tunic? This would be a very poor person, And it may be that they put their tunic up as a guarantee or a pledge or collateral for a loan. Maybe they didn't make good on a debt and now they're being sued or something like that. Probably fairly vindictive if you're taking someone's undergarment. There's probably more going on here than, man, I need another, you know, undergarment. And so I'm going to sue you for yours. Uh, but, But he's really here. I mean, it would apply literally, but he's really making a broader point than literally what's going on here here's the broader point. The Old Testament did not allow you to take someone's cloak. So in Exodus 22, for instance, it says you cannot take someone's outer robe, garment, their cloak. And the reason was because this garment doubled, especially for the poor person, it doubled as a sleeping blanket. It was a way of keeping warm. Uh, It was, uh, you know, a basic necessity for someone that they use as a sleeping blanket as well. So the Old Testament forbid you from taking a cloak. So what Jesus is saying here is that someone if they sue you to take your tunic the undergarment go ahead and give up what is rightfully yours as well be willing to give up your cloak even though they have no biblical right to sue you for that or to take that from you be willing to forego your rights for the sake of the kingdom if this is if this has a kingdom benefit to them if this is an act of love in some way then give them your cloak as well there are times when grace will lead us to surprise an opponent by giving up what is ours by right rather than arguing for rights being willing to give that up out of love in this case Christ is saying offer up your own clothing and even your means of uh, your blanket at night your cloak Paul says something very similar in first Corinthians 6 where he there is talking about a lawsuit and he's talking about Christians in the church that are suing each other and he says to them, look, why are you going down before the civil magistrate and arguing as Christians before him and you're trying to get what you think is due you from another believer? Isn't there anybody down at the church that can kind of help you sort that out and mediate it? And he said, if there's no one that can help you sort that out and mediate it, then wouldn't it just be better to be wronged? That's what Paul says. Wouldn't it be better to be wronged if you're going and arguing this case is gonna reflect poorly on Christ and the church and the kingdom, especially when you're a minority in the culture like that, as believers, they were a persecuted minority. Why would you want to go argue this? Wouldn't it be better, instead of saying, you owe me, and I'm going to get what you owe me, and I'm going to maybe get more than what you owe me, uh, why be vengeful like that? Why not just be willing to give up your right? That's what he says. He, it actually says, wouldn't it be better to be wronged What's the point? The first question when someone opposes us is not, what are my rights? The first question is, what would glorify Christ the most in this context? The first question is, what does non resistance and trusting God look like in this context? The question is, what is most loving for the other person? The question could even be, what would the way of the cross look like in this context? What would non-retaliation look like? So we're beyond non-violence, obviously non-violence, but beyond non-violence, or maybe not so obviously, I'm saying non-violence. And then additionally, non-retaliation of you owe me. In this situation, being willing to lay down your rights, wouldn't it be better to be wronged? It might be in some situations. In some situations, righteousness looks like being wronged. That's what, and enduring that. That's what righteousness looks like. Maybe not in every situation. I mean, obviously these are ethical. This is kind of a grid that you have to overlay your context. I can't, that's why I'm not giving every, you know, a thousand different illustrations of how this works out in your business or something like that. Obviously you're going to have to take the heart of what Christ says here. This is the intent of the kingdom. This is the, this is the direction of the kingdom. This is what kingdom life looks like. And you're going to have to overlay that on your situation. And make decisions. But here he's even talking about giving up what is rightfully yours, the cloak, in this situation. The next one, and this is where the alarm went off, so hold, hold your hold your seats. Hopefully we're okay here. Uh, the next one is the extra mile. And we sort of use that one out of context. For us, we say going the extra mile is like giving 110%. Or um, you know, she worked on weekends for this project. Man, she went the extra mile, and we give the extra mile award to the person who put out a great effort, uh, and that's fine. But but here it means something much more. Any uh, he says, anyone who forces you to go a mile, go with him two miles. The Israelites were under Roman rule. Okay, so j- the people of Israel are uh, have soldiers and various magistrates in their area that, that rule over them. They pay taxes to Rome, and so they're in their homeland, but they don't get to live freely. They have someone else that's occupied their homeland. And um, <clears throat> you see Roman soldiers playing a part at various points in the Gospels, for instance. So one of the laws was that a Roman soldier, someone in the military, could require a civilian to help him at any point. He could require a civilian to carry his gear, to carry his pack. You could, you could take a civilian's donkey and say, I need to use that for, for this. And you could require them to walk a certain, I believe it was a certain number of paces. Here it's referred to as a mile, but a certain distance and so not only is it bad to just say that, man, the military can just come out and require citizens to do what they want them to do when they want them to do it. Not only is that like, wow, does that really seem fair? But this is the oppressor doing this. They, they, people in Israel are not crazy about the Roman government. They're not crazy about Caesar. They're not crazy about, they're, they're waiting for a Messiah. That's what Christmas is about, right? They're waiting for a king who will overthrow the Roman ruler, they're looking for a king that will deliver them, that will come and uh, lead a coup and, and, and set them free. That's, that's the Messiah, the king they're waiting on. And so to be told that I have to serve someone who doesn't even deserve to be here because they want me to carry their pack X amount of steps... It was something that, was, uh, that they were very bitter about. It was an oppressive practice. They resented being forced to serve the military of the occupying army. So they could force you to carry your stuff, as, as Jesus says, for a mile. But Jesus says, offer to do double what is required. Voluntarily go the extra mile. It's a good example of loving one's enemy, which he talks about in the next passage, we'll see. Someone said this, the first mile renders to Caesar what is Caesar's, and the second mile renders to God what is God's. Or said a different way, one commentator said, Caesar requires that we surrender our services for one mile. God requires that we meet oppressors with kindness. Did you catch that? Caesar says we must serve the government in this situation for one mile. But Jesus says we must respond to those who oppress us with kindness, with love. Not eye for an eye, not retaliation, but the power of love. And when we do this, we demonstrate the rule of Christ because we show, yes, we are under Caesar's authority, Yes, we are to be responsible to as citizens under civil government. Uh, yes, we are to do that, but we answer to a higher King, a higher Emperor whose way is love. And this demonstrate this is demonstrated when we show unexpected generosity to someone who doesn't deserve it, to someone who doesn't deserve it, to someone who is requiring us to act for their self interest and for their benefit and not ours. Even in that, Jesus says, that shows us that the kingdom of God is about extending surprising love and surprising grace to other people. It's not bound up in my rights and my freedoms, but, or not my rights, but rather my freedom to love and to serve others. That's the power of the kingdom, that it frees us. That You could look at this and go, man, that, that is an act where I'm having to act in a way of subservience that's not just and fair, that's true. But he says here, act freely by freely loving and serving. We don't retaliate, we love. I mean, that is the retaliation. We respond back with love. That's the kingdom. That's why the kingdom is so different. That's how Jesus lived. That's why why we're talking about him 2,000 years later and and not any of the Roman soldiers. Last thing he says is give to those who ask. If anyone, uh, I'm sorry, verse 42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Jesus here says, give to beggars and borrowers who ask. We immediately want to say, are there any exceptions to this? I think there are, but the fact we want to ask that right off the bat is troubling. That's a problem. Then I want to know what the exceptions are. I want to know what the exceptions are i'll say this jesus is speaking to poor people if they literally obeyed this and gave everything to every beggar that asked they would last a day or two then it'd be over da carson who's a scholar tells in his uh, commentary on the on this that he was in cambridge and uh many of uh Many destitute people would actually take advantage; would kind of play. Not that they didn't have real needs, but they would kind of play on the students at Cambridge, especially probably like the theology students who knew this verse, and uh, and so they would just hit them every day, just getting stuff uh, from them. Often they weren't really in necessarily even in need, but this was just someone that they could get from. And he told the story about one graduate student who actually went bankrupt. He went bankrupt giving, and he said the, the problem was that after he took what he had and gave everything, all he really did was he went bankrupt and had nothing and supported them with alcohol for a few months or whatever it was, and that was it, and nobody really did any better because of that. So there, there is a place, obviously, to ask some questions, but the point here is that everything we own belongs to God. He owns everything and we're to give it freely. We're not to grasp, we're not to be building our kingdom, but we're to be building his kingdom. He gives us so that we can freely give and use it for other people and not for our own self-interest. Kingdom people are people who categorically are defined as givers and not takers. Those who receive and give, that's what he's talking about here, freely give. Anyone who has need, if it's within your power to help, help. That's, That's the point of this it's not let's go to the exception clause and it's it's if you have the power to help help that's the point freely give a distinguishing mark of a person that's come into the kingdom is that they go from a bent uh, the bent of selfishness to the bent of selflessness Think about Zacchaeus when he's converted. The first sign is that he pays people back, first of all, not eye for eye, but I'm going to give you money. He pays them back more and then he gives half his stuff away right off the bat. Conversion night, he gives half of all his possessions away. And Jesus says, today the kingdom of God has come into this house. Saying, here's the sign. This guy, this is for real. I mean, it's it's great to say, hey, now I'm a Christian. That's great. But this guy his world's upside down it's it's really showing he's different and that's what Jesus is saying here this is a distinguishing mark if somebody needs to borrow something give let them borrow if something needs if somebody needs something give it to them that is the mark not eye for eye tooth for tooth well they didn't lend to me i needed something and they didn't give it to me so I, why should i give to them no that that eye for eye tooth for tooth that has to do with assault okay let's don't apply that to personal relationships and misuse it rather freely freely give to those who have need these verses are really a portrait of christ aren't they he didn't resist evil people when they opposed him he did not seek personal vengeance or retaliation his defining ethic was self-sacrifice and not self-retaliation against other people he didn't just offer himself for those who were with him either Jesus didn't just give his life for those who like him, those who were doing well, those who were godly, those who were leaning in, those who supported him when he was down. I'm willing to give for those who, who who were there for me when I needed them. That's nobody. Rather, Jesus offered himself for those who were opposed to him. He gave himself for his enemies. On the cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He could have retaliated against those who nailed him to a cross, but he didn't retaliate. He loved them, he gave himself for them. The scripture says that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we were trying our best, not when we were doing pretty well, not when we were almost all the way to salvation, and he helped us over the last little bit by giving his life. Uh, That's not what the scripture says. It says, while we were opposed to him, While we were sinners, while we were rebels, while we were doing what we wanted to do, while we were dishonoring him, while we were not loving or obeying him, when we couldn't have cared less about him, he gave his life for us. We were his enemies, but he made us his friends, the Bible says. See, this is how Jesus lives. So he's saying, I'm coming, the king is coming, this is how I live, and those who know me, this is what I'm going to make you like. Giving freely, turning the cheek, giving the tunic, going the extra mile. Now, here's what I find about this passage, is that it's easy for me to read it without Jesus in view. It's easy, and it is, he is teaching and saying, here's how you to apply, so that's reasonable. It's easy for me to read this and just think about me and what I'm supposed to do. That's the easy thing that that we do, And, and, and go to the exceptions, do I really have to turn the cheek? Do I really, really did he mean give my tunic? What about my rights and all that, okay? Uh, give everything. So we want to build, so that's what I tend to do. Um, do I have to take a slap? Uh, do I have to give everything away? What, do I have to give my rights? And in all of those things, that angle kind of makes us, how are we the good guys? What am I supposed to do to be the good person in this situation? But let's shift the perspective and think about Christ as the one who fully lives this out, and here's the reality. We're not among the slapped, we're among the slappers. We're the slappers if this is Christ living this out. We've dishonored Jesus through our unbelief, we've chased idols. And, we've, and in so doing so, we've spit in his face. He's given us his law, and we've said we couldn't care less, and we've backhanded him. Sin is not just the breaking of some rules that are in the appendix that are kind of at the end of here's what you're supposed to do. It's not just the checklist. Sin is a personal affront against God himself. When we have disobeyed him, we have slapped Jesus' face, we have beat him, we have mocked him with our words. We have nailed him to a cross. We have been ungrateful for all that he has provided. In the scene where Jesus is being crucified, he is the one who is sustaining the heartbeats and filling the lungs with air of those who slap him and beat him and kill him. We are among the slappers in the story. We we've we charged God we're the ones, it's not like, well, somebody sued me. I got to give my tunic. Okay, I understand what he's saying here. But the reality is we've sued God. We've said, you owe me. See, a lawsuit's about getting a debt, getting something paid back. And we build a legal case in our minds. God owes me. If God's going to be fair to me, then I should have this, or this shouldn't happen. Or we look around at other people and we say, God, this is what I should have. I should be like them, or I should receive that. We charge God for not doing what we think he should do according to our sense of what serves us in personal fairness. I read about give to whoever asks. Give to the one who begs. And I start wanting to think about, well, what if they're going to misuse what I give them? Well, let's shift the perspective. What has God given me? 24 hours a day, he gives me time every day. Have I ever squandered what God has given me? Have I used all my seconds, all my minutes, all my hours to glorify him and to serve others? Have I spent what he's given on me? What about the money God gives me? Am I the deserving poor? Uh, have I, as everything he given me, have I been a good steward with what he has given me? yet how has he treated me he provides for me day after day after day after day graciously forgiving bearing with me kindly showering me with grace and mercy when i've dishonored and disobeyed where i've used him where i've charged him where i've demanded of him see this passage ultimately points to the king And when we dishonorably slapped him, he endured rather than retaliated because he loved us. And he was giving his life for us. He was making us his friends. He was acting. When we were acting as enemies, he was acting as friend. No greater greater love has no man that he lay down his life for his friends. Jesus yielded all. When we said, you owe me, he gave everything. He laid down his rights. We we don't deserve Jesus to leave heaven, leave glory and come and serve, give his life for us. But he gave freely. He gave freely. And we're now called to live out that kind of ethic. So he's saying, treat others the way you've been treated. We're called to live out that kind of ethic. And that's what light in the darkness looks like. That's what salt, he says, we're to be salt of the earth. We're to bring the flavoring of Christ. How do we bring the flavoring of Christ? Sometimes that shows up most clearly when we're mistreated. I would say usually it does. The flavor of Christ is shown most clearly when someone opposes us and we love them. When someone dishonors us and when we love them. When someone demands of us and we love them. When someone requires of us and we joyfully, lovingly serve them. This is where we show kingdom life and kingdom ethics, personal sacrifice, not personal retaliation, because that's the way of Jesus. That's the way of the cross, even going the extra mile for an enemy who doesn't deserve to be here. we think about examples of this, I think about what a difference this can make. If this kind of ethic grabs hold of me and you and grabs hold of us, what a difference it can make. And I give one example of how this ethic lived out publicly in someone's life has made a profound difference, and that's the example of Martin Luther King. At his funeral, at at Martin Luther King's funeral, Dr. Benjamin Mays um, spoke and gave a eulogy, and these are some of the things he said about him. He said, if any man knew the meaning of suffering, King knew. His house was bombed. He was living day by day for 13 years under constant threats of death. He was maliciously accused of being a communist. He was falsely accused of being insincere. He was stabbed by a member of his own race. He was slugged in a hotel lobby. He was jailed over 20 times. He was occasionally deeply hurt because friends betrayed him. And yet, this man had no bitterness in his heart, no rancor in his soul, no revenge in his mind. And he went up and down the length and breadth of this world, preaching nonviolence and the redemptive power of love. I love that phrase that Mays uses at the funeral, the redemptive power of love. I don't know what you're facing now, but if you think of that in each of the four scenarios, illustrations he used here, what would the redemptive power of love look like so, for the person who dishonors you, mocks you, persecutes you, probably this is not an act of physical violence that you turning the other cheek, it's probably a metaphorical slap, uh, the person who rejects you, what would the redemptive power of love look like to that person? The person who demands, who says, you owe me, you're in my debt. They may not be suing you actually in court, but their attitude is, you owe me. What would the redemptive power of love, which says, I give up my rights in love to another, look like? The one who has the power to require you to serve their interests like the soldier the one who could make you serve their interests. What does it look like to go the extra mile and to express the power of redemptive love to them? They treat you like your, their servant. What does loving them look like? I love it that somebody said, you don't know how much of a servant you are until someone treats you like one that's when you find out who's a servant. It's great to find who's a servant, so we say we've got to stack the chairs and find out who starts stacking the chairs. That's great service. It's when someone condescendingly expects you at work or somewhere else, expects that you will serve them. And like, what's the first thought? Who do you think I am, your servant? Jesus would say, yes, It's exactly what you are. Called to serve. We don't know how much of a servant we are until somebody treats us like that. The one who begs, who asks, who requests, give me, can I borrow, can you, can you give me? What does redemptive love look like to that person? We can't do this on our own. None of us can, can be this. Only one person could be this, and that was Jesus. Jesus. And it ultimately reflects him. But Jesus wants us to trust him and to follow him. And he wants to change us. He wants us to repent. And he wants to change us as we trust him by faith and as we take steps of action to make us more and more like this so that we are the light of the world and the salt of the earth. So that we're not saying eye for eye, but we are saying nonviolent, nonresistant, non-retaliatory, non-retribution love towards others. And when that gets hold of us and God gets hold of a people like that, a city can be changed, a country can be changed, really the world can be changed through that kind of love. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.